This is exactly right. Hey, listeners, I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, host of Tenfold More Wicked and Buried Bones. Let me tell you about my new project. It's an audiobook original called The Ghost Club. The Ghost Club is about an exclusive dinner club started in the late 1800s. Some of the world's most important people gathered to tell real-life ghost stories. We're talking about Charles Dickens, William Yates, Arthur Conan Doyle, and Harry Houdini. They investigated spiritual encounters, life after death, and fraudulent mediums. The chairman of the Ghost Club was Harry Price, the world's most successful ghost hunter. His most well-known case was the harrowing year he spent living in England's Borley Rectory. Did Harry Price uncover real ghosts, or did he fake evidence of spirits, or both? Listen as I tell you about the legends of the Ghost Club and the Borley Rectory, as well as my own experiences as a kid. The Ghost Club is available now wherever you get your audiobooks. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Despite my better judgment, my 12-year-old daughter joined me on this trip to New Orleans. I say that because she's not as interested in crime history as I am. She scares really easily. She doesn't like creepy things, unlike my other kid. New Orleans might not be the place for her, but we'll see. We're on one of New Orleans' famous streetcars, riding the St. Charles streetcar line. It's just a few blocks from Annie Crawford's former home on Chestnut Street. She rode this streetcar back and forth to work in 1910. This seems like a fantastic way to travel, even if it's a little slow moving. But historian Terence Fitzmaurice says that when Annie Crawford rode this line, streetcars were even more inefficient and very troublesome. Streetcars are iconic in New Orleans today, but in 1910, they were a real pain. (laughs) Uh, They weren't as pretty, they weren't as well-connected, and there were too many of them. There is gas and electricity and telephone, which have been around for a long time in New Orleans. The average citizen is seeing a good deal of progress, and they've been introduced to a novelty that's coming in shortly, and to further make New Orleans more uh, congested, and that is the uh, automobile. Uh, The streets are always congested. They were never made for automobiles. And it's a serious concern for the citizens of New Orleans. It sounds like walking was the most efficient way to travel throughout New Orleans in the early 1900s. The Crawfords used some form of transportation to get to work, the various methods available. But their church was just a few blocks away, so they walked. And Sunday Mass was a highlight of their week. St. Stephen's Catholic Church is incredible. It was designed in a German Gothic style, complete with imported stained glass. It's the second largest Catholic church in the city. Its six-sided spire is more than 200 feet high, and you can spot it from miles away. St. Stephen's is on Napoleon Avenue, less than two blocks from Chestnut Street, where the Crawfords were. And for the family, there were few things more important than Mass. 
I asked Terence Fitzmorris about the Irish population in New Orleans at the turn of the century. I wanted to get a sense of the Crawfords community. How many Irish people are we talking about in 1910, 1911 in New Orleans? Oh, well, the number of Irish actually from Ireland is roughly about 7,500, down from 30,000 in 1860. Wow. But their their descendants, Irish Americans, are numerous. Of course, the United States Census doesn't categorize you as an Irish American. Right. Just, just that if you're Irish or you're German or you're Italian or Polish or Danish. Women in Irish American families were encouraged to marry early. If they weren't married, they remained with their parents, like Annie Crawford and her sisters did. Some might marry into their late teens or early 20s. But once a woman passed her late 20s, the families might fear that she would never find a husband. It would have been normal in an Irish-American family if the girls had been unmarried, like Annie Crawford, to, to stay living in the house, I assume. Yes, indeed, they would have, yes. It would have been expected. Yes, expected. Author Alan Gotro says that Annie didn't seem preoccupied with marrying, even though she had been labeled a certain derogatory term at age 28, spinster. I hate that word, and I hate old maid, too. They were labels meant to shame women who chose not to marry or chose not to settle. It was also a sort of veiled threat. No man wanted a middle-aged woman, they would say. Many Irish-American families pressured their teenage daughters to find husbands, but the Crawfords didn't seem to do that, at least not with Annie. She did not have any gentleman callers, uh, but I don't think she was concerned with that. And yet Annie's sisters complained that she criticized their suitors when they came knocking on the door. Maybe it was out of jealousy because she had none of her own, but I doubt it. I've been working to understand the arc of her life for this story by examining her actions throughout her whole life. I think she simply craved control, and it wasn't easy to control three young women and two parents. This push and pull created a lot of tension in the family. Annie wanted to regulate everyone. She determined what her sisters and, and her aunt and everyone else should do and whether her sister should date or whatever. So it was uh, you know, a very dysfunctional family. Annie's niece-in-law, Cecile Leo, agrees. Even 50 years later, Annie Crawford was still trying to manage everyone in her family when she lived with Cecile and Patrick. Annie focused only on her nephew, not his sister's, and certainly not his wife. She never looked at me, but she'd stare at Pat, didn't take her eyes off of him. And it was like Mary and Kitty weren't even there either. It was just like Pat was the only one there, and she just stared at Pat. He certainly wasn't comfortable. Annie Crawford always seemed to be in her own world, and it made many people uncomfortable. Cecile simply tolerated her. I don't think I was avoiding her, but I just felt more comfortable, I think, just being with Pat. And she didn't she didn't seem to mind being by herself and everything. I remember one time I did ask her. I said, Nanny, I said, do you ever get lonesome being here all by yourself, you know, all day long? Because I'd, I'd go meet Pat and everything. And she said, no. That was all. She didn't get lonesome. And I know the answer to this, but she never dated or thought about it? No. 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 Never went anywhere. In Annie's defense, she was in her 80s by the time she lived with Cecile and Patrick. 
it might have been difficult for her to go places. But if Cecile had known what Annie Crawford was accused of, she might have been more wary and much more careful. It was June 25th of 1910, and Chestnut Street in uptown New Orleans was quiet in the waning sunset. The street lamps glowed as the city's iconic live oaks created creepy shadows on the siding of the old Victorian houses. Lights flickered in the windows of the neighbors' houses. Inside the Crawford home, a soft light from a nearby electric lamp hummed while Mary Agnes Crawford slept. The Crawfords had stored their gas lamps several years ago. As the daylight disappeared and the night crept in, the family physician, Dr. H.B. Gessner, squinted at Mary Agnes in the light. Despite the lamp's radiance, it still wasn't easy to see anything in detail. Dr. Gessner had reviewed the 30-year-old's symptoms earlier in the day. She had complained of a sensitivity to the light. Her head ached. She was running a fever. She felt sick to her stomach. Her neck was stiff and sore, and all of this came on very quickly. Mary Agnes had been fine yesterday at her job with the railway. It was Saturday, and Mary Agnes wasn't expected at work, even though many people did go to their jobs on Saturdays. Most folks in New Orleans had Sundays off to attend church services, but at the turn of the century, Saturdays were still considered part of the work week. Annie thought about her old job at the sanitarium. Her sisters had wondered if she would look for a similar position at another hospital. That job had been a lot of responsibility. It would have been trying for anyone, but it didn't seem to bother Annie. From the time she started five years earlier, she had been praised for her work ethic. But when she was caught stealing narcotics, she was fired immediately. Before the sanitarium, Annie had briefly been a telephone operator for the city for $12 a month. But when she earned her job at the hospital as a clerk, she rose there quickly, earning $50 a month. Before she was fired, Annie was reliable, something the hospital demanded of its employees because the patients there really required patience. Her supervisor once called her one of his most trusted employees and a young woman committed to her work at the sanitarium. Some sanitariums were health spas for the rich who needed a mental break. Annie's place of work was a sanitarium and a teaching hospital that treated long-term physical illnesses, so the patients were likely treated with care. But I've always associated sanitariums with draconian mental health facilities in the early 1900s. Those facilities often used archaic methods to treat patients. Water torture, deadly procedures, they sounded like insane asylums. Terence Fitzmorris talks about the types of women who were admitted or taken involuntarily. Many of them were no different from Annie. They would have come from a similar socioeconomic background. Uh, So for women like Annie, her grandparents were born in Ireland. Her mother and father were both born in in New Orleans. Her mother of French descent, her father of Irish descent. There would have been little access for her to seek out mental health issues she would really have to have been truly uh, insane. Some, someone close to you would have to say that you were so incompetent you could not handle your own personal duties and responsibilities to yourself. And you'd have to go through a court proceeding. And the judge would determine whether you were capable of handling your own problems 
And if you were not, then he would assign you to an insane asylum where you would supposedly be treated. I know that a lot of the justifications used were actually excuses. There are advertisements in the newspapers about, you know, women being overly emotional and that they needed serious care. The advertisements that I've seen in the paper deal primarily with women, whether it's change of life or it's childbirth or any of these afflictions that women were you know, prone to. The newspapers are complete with that. The men are considered, you know, if they are not manly enough, then there are, there are treatments that they can give you to make you more manly, you know, serums and, and uh, massages and electrical shocks. And there was the belief that women were more prone to mental illness than men were. The sane asylum records that the city of New Orleans has points to a lot of women in those insane asylums. They were considered uh, you know, with the Freudian notion of being hysterical. And thus the hysterectomy, right, and to, to end the hysterical female personality. Women were considered more emotional, less rational, given to fits of melancholy and depression. I know what asylums were like in the 1800s. They gave patients bad treatments that many times killed those patients. Were there any improvements in the 1900s? Well, there, there was a, <laughs> this is the phrase that was used. It was that the actual words that were used, a lunatic asylum. Mm. And people who had mental illness as opposed to depression and the like were treated in the same fashion as they had been treated before. It was considered a moral affliction. And so it was more like a prison system for mental illness. What would happen to a woman with mental health issues in 1910? So if she had gone into an asylum, she would have been treated Uh, just as an alcoholic was treated. Alcoholism was considered a psychological, moral affliction. And that's what she would have been treated with. But you had said that the sanitarium where Annie worked was different than an asylum, right? Well, the sanitarium that she worked for uh, was more akin to a hospital, more like charity hospital than it was an insane asylum. Until recently, Annie Crawford had what appeared to be a good life. She had a prestigious job at a respected hospital, and she came from a large family who all lived together in a relatively safe working-class area. Annie wasn't married with children or even dating, but she didn't seem to mind. She didn't have friends, but she didn't seem to mind that either. She was close to Emma, her older sister. So it seemed like she was capable of being close to people. But Annie kept to herself, and she kept a secret from her family. She never revealed why she was no longer at the sanitarium. She told them that she had resigned. She refused to admit that she had been stealing drugs. The sanitarium was always busy, so no one seemed to notice when it happened a few months ago. Annie would open the medicine cabinet at the dispensary, and she would palm some small white pills in a bottle, very powerful small white pills. Morphine. It's a narcotic that can be a godsend for someone in agony, or a source of addiction for someone in pain, or for a murderer, a weapon. How would Annie Crawford use her supply of morphine? I didn't know much about morphine until 2009 when I got a morphine epidural injection when I was giving birth to my twin girls. I asked author Alan Gotro about how morphine had been used in medicine throughout history. Morphine is named after Morpheus, god of sleep, 
And well, it is highly addictive. Uh, we see it in other synthetic forms like Demerol. And after the Civil War, there was a high addiction rate. We talked about those soldiers earlier, Civil War veterans who suffered from painful wounds for the rest of their lives after they returned home, and how they became addicted to morphine because it made them feel better for a little while. Dr. Neil Bradbury talks a little bit more about that addiction. Yeah, so morphine is a depressant chemically. It depresses the brain activity. It causes sleepiness in reasonable levels, but in high levels, it depresses the ability of the person to breathe. Someone who uses morphine will likely experience a feeling of euphoria, a warmth throughout their body that is unmatched and very dangerous. If you don't understand the dosage and if you measure incorrectly, the results can be deadly. Too much morphine can lead to a quiet death like dozing off and never waking up. And so a person who is given a morphine overdose will eventually slowly fall asleep and then stop breathing. It is one of the more, um, or should I say, it's one of the less dramatic ways of dying. The Civil War gave rise to hypodermic needles in America after physicians began using them on injured soldiers. But needles helped create the opioid epidemic in the late 1800s, Injecting the drug directly into your bloodstream brought on that euphoric feeling much faster than ingesting a pill. Quicker results. Author and poison expert Deborah Blum says that morphine is so powerful that an injection can kill anyone very easily. But the morphine pills that Annie Crawford was stealing took longer to work than morphine injected with a hypodermic needle. It's most effectively injected, right? It's like ricin. Ricin is most effective if you inject it. If you swallow it or inhale it, it's not as poisonous. But you can swallow it, right? But but medically, you tend to inject it, and it's, you know, a, a, a depressant, a nervous system depressant, basically. So you feel less pain, but it can also entirely shut down your nervous system and kill you. That's not to say that morphine pills weren't deadly. They were. They just took longer to work. But it would be difficult for a poisoner to secretly inject someone with morphine, so for most of them, pills would have to do. And if those pills were given secretly to a victim, they might feel just a little bit sleepy at first. Then they might have light sensitivity, or nausea, or a cracking headache, or a sore neck. Sound familiar? These were all symptoms that Mary Agnes Crawford was experiencing. But these symptoms are associated with spinal meningitis too. That's what she was diagnosed with. If she didn't have spinal meningitis, was Mary Agnes being poisoned? And if so, why? We know that Annie Crawford had access to morphine at the sanitarium where she worked. And she had been fired the month before for stealing morphine pills, though no one in her family knew that. We also know that Annie was sneaky and cold and probably untrustworthy. But as Mary Agnes drifted toward a coma, no one suspected Annie of doing anything wrong, not even her suspicious Aunt Mary who lived nearby. Annie seemed just as concerned as everyone else about her sister's sudden illness as she hovered around Mary Agnes's bedside. 
Dr. Gessner zipped his medicine bag and asked the family to keep him informed. There was little to be done now. If this had been spinal meningitis, then it could have come about in several different ways. It was likely bacterial, which was life-threatening without emergency antibiotic treatment. But the trouble was that penicillin wasn't available until 1910. It would have been unusual for the meningitis to be fungal or parasitic, and so hopefully it was viral, which was more common. If what Mary Agnes had was viral, then she might recover with no treatment. All the Crawfords could do was pray and keep an eye on her. But then a few days after the doctor's visit, Annie stopped in to check on Mary Agnes. She was cold. Her eyes were closed. Her body was still. Mary Agnes Crawford, at age 30, was dead. Gertrude and Elise and their parents seemed to all be in disbelief. One of their most beloved family members was gone. Dr. Gessner returned to the house and offered his final diagnosis. Yes, it was certainly meningitis, most likely bacterial. Up to 90% of those cases were fatal in the early 1900s. The Crawfords were devastated over the young woman's death. Emma and Walter Crawford mourned their daughter. Mary Agnes's sisters, Gertrude, Emma, and Elise, wept. Elise seemed to take it the hardest. Elise was heartbroken over Mary Agnes's death. She sobbed. She had always seemed just slightly unstable. Elise had been dating a local grocer named Edward Zahn, but he never wanted to commit fully. She had hoped for an engagement at some point, but it didn't seem likely. Other family members were concerned about her mental health. They feared at times that she might want to take her own life. Elise had kept secrets from them, secrets she was ashamed of. As Elise wept, Annie seemed emotionless. She watched Elise. They had never gotten along, ever. Was Annie simply a reserved person who had trouble even feigning grief? Yes, according to most people who knew her. But was she a poisoner? Or did Mary Agnes simply die of natural causes? I've always been interested in poisoners, especially 19th century poisoners. There were many cases when women bought arsenic over the counter in the form of rat poison. It was called rough on rats. They used it to murder their husbands or their lovers or their romantic rivals. The history of crime is littered with stories of women using poison to achieve very clear objectives. But their selection of weapons was finite because undetectable poisons were limited, even in the 1800s. They're even more limited now, thanks to modern toxicology. Even so, poisoners in the 1800s did have some options. Historically, symptoms of arsenic poisoning had been difficult for police to spot because they often mimicked other gastrointestinal issues like cramping or vomiting. But by the late 19th century, pathologists were catching on and investigators began watching for signs of arsenic. Author Deborah Blum says that the 20th century poisoner had options beyond just arsenic, unlike the 19th century poisoner. And these were options that allowed them to murder with ease. So, so I'm a poisoner, and, and I'm going to plan ahead. I'm going to sound really creepy when I'm walking through this, I expect. But if you're a poisoner, the, one of the, your primary objectives is to get away with it. You're not making a statement killing, right? There are killings that happen because people are sending a message. They're not trying to make things hard on themselves. And so the early 20th century 
is a time period where a lot of really great homicidal poisons are at hand. So when you're a poisoner, you're actually trying to slip away and to get away with something. You're not trying to send a message with this type of murder. That's not what you do as a poisoner. You're figuring out how to eliminate a problem, a person, a threat, an obstacle to your wealth, right? You're a rival, you're a poisoner's, you know, have all kinds of grudges that go in play when they want to get rid of someone or they're afraid. I've seen some of the poisoners that I've looked at called comfort killers. They kill for their personal comfort, right? And so you're, I, I want to have a cushy life. You have the money and I don't. I want to get rid of you, but I don't want to get caught. I want to enjoy the money, right? If you were an investigator in 1910 and you suspected that Annie Crawford were a poisoner, you would look for a motive. Did Annie see Mary Agnes as a romantic rival? Did she hate her enough to kill her for some reason? Was she working with someone else in the family who had a grudge against Mary Agnes? These were all logical questions. Let's take each one of them one by one. Mary Agnes didn't appear to be dating anyone, so the romantic rival query was a dead one. Annie might have disliked many people, but she didn't seem to hate anyone, including Mary Agnes. And the Crawford family might have been dysfunctional, but there didn't seem to be any animosity, except between Annie and her Aunt Mary, unless there were secrets that we still don't know about. And there are. According to the doctor, Mary Agnes died of spinal meningitis, and that was certainly possible. The signs of spinal meningitis are a headache, a fever, and a stiff neck, all symptoms that Mary Agnes had. But these symptoms are also the same if she had been poisoned. If we eliminate all of the motives we mentioned before, what are we left with? This is where the story gets complicated. If Annie Crawford had been guilty of intentionally poisoning Mary Agnes, there are some other possible motives. Even though these motives are unlikely for this case, it's good to at least talk about them. In criminology, there's a category of killers called angel of mercy offenders. Many times, these are people in the medical field who intentionally hurt or kill patients. But the strange thing is that the reasons they do it really vary. I asked Dr. Neil Bradbury about some of those motives. I think there's also a part of it that some of the individuals are what we would refer to as angels of mercy, that see people in pain and decide that they should be the ones responsible for getting rid of the pain. And the only way you can really do that is by killing the individuals. But of course, the patient's pain might not really exist. It could be a delusion created by the angel of mercy. Dr. Bradbury says that sometimes these types of killers simply have a God complex. I think part of it is experimentation. You learn about drugs and chemicals in your classes, and there's always a question of, I wonder what this would really look like if it was used on someone. And there are other people that just feel that they have the power to have... uh, life and death in their hands and are able to just dispatch of someone at a whim. Tell me about a case. Um, One of the individuals that actually led to legislation was Charles Cullen, who was a nurse in New Jersey. 
and he went through several hospitals in New Jersey killing people with digoxin. What is that? Uh, digoxin is a drug that's used extensively for treating heart conditions. It's a very useful drug, but in the wrong amounts can lead to heart attack and death. How was he getting away with that? The interesting thing is that no one knew how he was killing people. And that's because when nurses and doctors give out drugs in hospitals, there is a machine that holds all the drugs. The pharmacist will load up the machine and the machine will be taken round the various uh, hospital rooms. And then a nurse will type in what medication they want. Cullen seemed to be giving out a lot of Tylenol. Why would Tylenol be interesting? Well, the interesting thing is that Tylenol is the trade name. The chemical name is acetaminophen. And acetaminophen was exactly in the same drawer, A to D, that also held digoxin. He was typing in, I want acetaminophen, going into the drawer, pulling out digoxin, injecting it into people and killing them. Wow. There were several opportunities to arrest Charles Cullen, but unfortunately the hospitals decided that it was better for them just to pass him on and allow him to resign and move on to different hospitals. No one wanted to take responsibility. There was actually legislation that was called Cullen's Law that required hospitals to report to the state agencies if they have any suspicions of nurses that may be doing harm to their patients. Later, we'll meet a former nurse who was addicted to drugs, and she stole them from her patients. When her supervisors began to suspect she was stealing, she wasn't reported. She was passed around from facility to facility, just like Charles Cullen. The supervisor said, just as long as she doesn't work at my facility, I don't care. An angel of mercy might kill patients out of a delusional idea that it's a mercy killing. Or they might enjoy experimenting with the drugs they use, and they want to share that feeling with others. Or they might just be sadistic and relish murdering just for the sake of murdering. The sadistic poisoner is the one that might fit our society's traditional definition of a serial killer. Someone who murders at least three people with a cooling off period in between, and they do it for some kind of dysfunctional gratification. Author Mary Kay McBrayer wrote a book about one of those sadistic killers, Jane Toppin. Jolly Jane, as she was nicknamed, was a nurse in the late 1800s and early 1900s who murdered at least 12 people using poison. And she confessed to killing at least a dozen more. She seemed to enjoy torturing them. Mary Jane explains more about Jane Toppin's motives for poisoning people and then watching them die. My thinking is, and this is also corroborated by, you know, her confession, is that she would dose people with morphine so they'd be unconscious. And then I think she overdosed someone on accident and tried to cover it up with atropine and did it. And then was like, oh, now I can really do it. And then, and we don't have to go too far into detail on this, but she got in the bed with people and derived sexual gratification from doing that to them as they were about to die and then bring them back. I think it is just, if no one else can recognize how smart I am, at least I'm going to prove it to myself. Like, I know I can do it. It's a mad scientist-y type of perversion, I think. 
So let's suppose that Mary Agnes Crawford was actually poisoned and it could be proven. Are we certain that it was Annie who did it? Alan Gotro isn't so sure yet. So maybe she thought there wasn't going to be any consequences. Maybe she thought nobody was going to find out. You know, it's, it falls in line with, uh, you know, it's one of those strange cases in history where we just don't know a lot about the reasons why. If Mary Agnes were poisoned, there was no way to prove it without physical evidence, which would likely be found at an autopsy. And because Mary Agnes's doctor wasn't suspicious, he didn't alert the medical examiner, so there wouldn't be an autopsy. It sounds like we need more information, and perhaps we can learn more by tracking Annie's actions after her sister's death. Because they were suspicious. Mary Agnes died on a Saturday at the end of June in 1910. The Crawford family all dressed in black, which indicated that they were in mourning. Their neighbors comforted Walter and Emma Crawford because of the loss of their daughter. Everyone stayed home on Monday, except for Annie. First thing that morning, Annie Crawford slipped out of her family's home on Chestnut Street. She walked to the St. Charles streetcar that would take her near the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company on South Carrollton Avenue, about three miles away. She swung open the door of the one-story red brick building and summoned an agent. As the man took notes, Annie explained her situation. Her older sister, Mary Agnes, had just unexpectedly died. It was a tragedy for her family, and they needed money to pay the funeral expenses. Funeral expenses in 1910 varied wildly, just like they do today. Despite having modest incomes, each member of the Crawford family agreed to do something very practical. They all had life insurance policies. The funds would be used in cases just like this one to help make up the lost income from the dead family member. Annie Crawford wanted to know about her sister's policy. How much was it? She asked the Metropolitan Life Insurance agent. Mary Agnes had a $300 life insurance policy. $300 would be worth about $9,000 today. The whole family used a nickel a week system, which meant that they paid a nickel a week, which is why the policy was quite small. Was $300 enough money to help make up Mary Agnes's income for the entire Crawford family? The five people that were left? Not for long. But would $300 benefit three people? Maybe. And it turns out that Annie Crawford and her two sisters were the only beneficiaries of Mary Agnes's insurance policy. The agent at the insurance company asked Annie for her sister's death certificate, and she handed him a piece of paper, signed by the coroner that morning. Under cause of death, it read, Acute Meningitis. The agent approved the payout. Let's review the evidence so far. Annie Crawford had access to some very powerful narcotics before she was fired from the hospital. She had been stealing morphine in large amounts. Annie collected the equivalent of almost $9,000 from her sister's life insurance policy, but she would need to split it with her sisters. Would she really kill Mary Agnes over a few thousand dollars? But remember, each of the Crawfords had life insurance policies. Each person who died left their savings behind and the funds from their own policy. That could really add up. In June of 1910, Mary Agnes was given a funeral mass at St. Stephen Catholic Church. 
maintenance workers at St. Patrick's Cemetery shoveled mounds of dirt for Mary Agnes's grave, which was raised a few feet above the ground, so that resulted in a lot of dirt. Annie Crawford and her sisters all wore black. Pallbearers carried Mary Agnes's casket across the grass of St. Patrick's Yard for a sunny graveside ceremony where the priest recited prayers. At the end of the service, the mourners recited the Lord's Prayer. Even this modest service would have come at a price. Mary Agnes died just one month before her 31st birthday. She would be the first Crawford buried at the cemetery on City Park Avenue, at least the first in their immediate family. But she wouldn't be the last Crawford in a very short period of time. As we said earlier, it was possible that Mary Agnes Crawford did die of spinal meningitis. If Annie Crawford were a murderer, it seems obvious to me that her motive was to collect the life insurance money. The patriarch of the Crawford family, Walter Crawford, had never been a wealthy man. He was a carpenter for the railway, and his wife, Emma, ran the home and was there to greet him every day after work. Walter seemed pleasant enough, a devout Irish Catholic who had been married for decades. His daughters often cooked for him, especially Annie. Walter hadn't been particularly well off, but he was comfortable and generally healthy for a 58-year-old man in 1910. He never had major health concerns. So a few weeks after Mary Agnes's death, when Walter Crawford complained of stomach cramping and nausea, some of the same symptoms that she had complained of, it was understandably troubling. Walter's hips were aching. He was in agony. Walter clutched his stomach as his wife, Emma, hovered above him. Annie was nearby too. Walter's illness was worrisome. Was this another case of spinal meningitis? Or something even worse? Do you believe in coincidences? I do, but maybe not in this story. What did Ian Fleming write in his novel Goldfinger? Once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, The third time is enemy action. On the next episode of Tenfold War Wicked on Exactly Right. So it was a very dysfunctional family. There's no question of of that, you know, and I I found that the men were without really any say-so in the matter. They took a back seat to everything. You know, the received wisdom was there was no such thing as, you know, female serial murder. And in doing research on an earlier book, I realized that there have been many, many female serial killers. They just tend to commit their crimes in different ways from male serial killers. Dealing with true crime or historical crime, as I'm sure you are, you know, because you're experienced at it, um, I would have to describe her as sociopathic, psychopathic, addictive personality, and someone that thought they saw themselves as somewhat, uh, maybe deep down inside as an angel of mercy. But there was nothing that she did that was merciful. 
If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked, which is based on the first season of Tenfold War Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold War Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold War. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldwarwicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.